I want to begin this morning by asking us to do the impossible. I want us to try as fallen, finite, imperfect human beings to have the perspective of our holy, perfect, infinite God. It's impossible, but I want us to give it a shot. God made this amazing and astonishing universe, and it was perfectly fitted for human life down to the smallest little detail. Then he created human beings in his likeness, and he said it was good. Think of all the gifts he's given us, our five senses to perceive this world, family, friendship, love, adventure. All these amazing gifts are laid out in this perfect setup that God created and placed us in. And yet, if we had the opportunity, we would kill God and put ourselves in charge of our life. Some of you are saying that's awful harsh, but we would do it in a heartbeat. Every sin we commit, big or little, whether intended or not, is a declaration to God that we do not want you in our life and we want to be in charge. As one theologian says, every sin intended or not, is cosmic treason before a holy God. He is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. So how has God responded to his creation, all of us, who willfully do this day in and day out? Instead of crushing the human rebellion, he initiated a merciful plan to forgive the rebels. He initiated a merciful plan to not just forgive the rebels, but to rescue the rebels from his coming wrath. If we were to design a plan that would save the human race, none of us would come up with the plan that God did. God chose to send his one and only son, and he did it in such a vulnerable way. Jesus Christ came to earth not in the form of an adult with lots of power and influence, but as an infant. I don't know about you, but if I was putting forward the plan, the Son of God wouldn't have come forward as an infant. And he designed the plan in a time that we wouldn't have picked. He put his one and only son as an infant, not in a world where healthcare was at its best, but where healthcare was primitive. There not, was not even space at the inn, let alone a world-class hospital. The son came the most vulnerable way possible, perhaps in the worst conditions possible, but God pulled it off. It's impossible for us to imagine this son of God walking on earth what it, he would have been like to, what it would have been like to see him right there in front of us such wisdom such purity such strength such wholeness a human being who never ever ever sinned once who is perfect in all of his ways i think if i were on earth when he was here i bet 
I might find him very unapproachable until he disarmed my pride with his love. So God creates this dome of pleasure called universe, gives us more than we could ever dream of or deserve, and to show our thanks, we rebel against him, try to become our own God, and in response, he sends his son as a gift of love, perfect mercy, perfect truth, perfect love, the best human being that ever lives, and to show our gratitude, then we crucify him. And we go about our own business as if nothing happened and we did nothing wrong. And some of us stay in that place the rest of our days. None of us is like God. None of us can fully imagine what it's like to be God, but we all know how we would feel, how we would respond if someone treated us the way the world has treated God. We would have this righteous indignation. And as one commentator said, take that indignation you would feel, put on it perfect holiness, put on it, multiply all the sins of the world, of all the people who ever lived or never will, and then you might get a taste of understanding of why Revelation chapter 16 is in the Bible. We have to try the impossible. We have to try to view this passage through the perspective of a holy God who did all he could to save humanity and the humanity we see in this text turn their back on him forever. How is he supposed to respond as a just and holy God? That's what we have to do this morning. We can't take the perspective of the sinner. If we look at it solely from a sinner's perspective, we'll think, wow, God is really, really harsh. We need to realize that our human sin-tainted view on this matter is extremely limited, grossly inaccurate, and not very helpful. Our main point today is that God is glorified and right when he brings wrath upon the wicked who refuse to repent. This is perfect justice. Perfect justice. This is God's perspective. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn it on or open to Revelation chapter 16. We're going to pick up in verse 10. Last week we entered this part of Revelation where the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth in the final judgment. There's seven bowls of God's wrath. We saw the first four of them last week. And today we pick up with the final three as we see the wrath of God continued and the wrath of God culminated. So these are the end days when Jesus is pouring out his judgment upon those on earth who refuse to repent and who could be considered his enemies for life. Verses 10 and 11 say this, the fifth angel, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they have done. So now the wrath that's being poured out that we saw last week is directed to the source 
of wickedness and evil. God's wrath is being poured out on the throne of the beast, the false god of the wicked. And we see who they really are because they are still cursing God and not acknowledging who he is. They're not begging for mercy. They're glorying and being destroyed. That's how warped and evil they are at this point. And then the wrath of God is culminated in verses 12 to 26. I want to read this section in its entirety and then go back because when I read it, there's going to be lots of things that will pop up in your mind that you'll wonder what's that all about. And so we're going to spend the bulk of our time today on that. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They're demonic spirits and perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The first thing we see is this wrath is being poured out at the great river Euphrates. This is going back to something in the Old Testament that I'm going to develop more in a second. But what I first want you to notice is that the false trinity is back. If you remember, we covered the evil trinity that took place. You had the dragon, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the earth. Now they make their appearance again, but the beast of the earth is referred to as the false prophet. Impure things are coming out of their mouths. That's the symbolism that frogs is supposed to give us. Frogs were an unclean thing in the Jewish mind. And so there's impurities, lies, deceptions, pouring from the mouth of this evil trinity to entice world powers to turn themselves against Jesus Christ. So we see world powers on earth at the time enticed to set themselves against Jesus Christ. And again, John is using Old Testament imagery to teach us, but also remember this is to teach his original audience because they would know their Old Testament extremely well, probably better than us. And he uses an example of something that happened to a good king. There's a good king in the Old Testament named Josiah. Josiah was one of the rare good kings that the people of Israel had. And Josiah became caught between two superpowers, Egypt and Assyria. And he tried to negotiate. He tried to bring peace. He tried to play both sides, but it ended up costing him his life. We see it in 2 Kings chapter 23. It says, while Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the Euphrates River, again, that's in our text here in Revelation, to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho faced him and killed him at Megiddo. In our text today in Revelation, we see both Euphrates 
and we see Megiddo. Armageddon means the hill of Megiddo or the mount of Megiddo. And that's what it looks like right there. It's an actual place. That's Armageddon. That's the hill of Megiddo. It's in northern Israel. It's about 18 miles from a city called Haifa. And John is bringing it into this letter because he wants to teach his original audience something. Now, one of the challenges in studying Revelation and interpreting what it means is you have to interpret how much of this is literal and how much of this is symbolic. That has been my war since January. I come to this text, how much is literal, how much is symbolic, and you have scholars on the one side that say everything in Revelation is literal. And you have scholars on the other side that say everything in Revelation is symbolic. And the truth is always usually in the middle. But I'm going to walk through with you why I think this should be interpreted the way I'm going to interpret it and why it's important for us today. When some people see the word Armageddon in verse 16, what comes to their mind is this 21st century war that's going to take place. Tanks, missiles, armies. And if you look at the books and movies and magazines, that's what they promote. This great battle of Armageddon where the armies of the Antichrist are going to take on the armies of the true Jesus Christ and there's going to be this 21st century nuclear war type thing that's going to play out. But the first thing I want you to notice, in verse 16, do you see any battle there at all? There's no battle. Is there a battle in verse 17? No. 18? No. 19? See where I'm going? There's no battle in this text. There's a battle hinted at in verse 14. They gather for the battle, but we still don't see a battle even there. They assembled, but no battle actually takes place. Now, it's funny that those scholars who feel everything in Revelation has to be taken literally, exactly literally, say that there's going to be this big modern war of 21st century armament where there's going to be tanks and missiles and all these things. And they say, these are the ones that take this literally. But then you look and there's no literal battle anywhere in the text. The wicked gather for battle but there's nothing in the text about a battle taking place. Why are they gathered for battle, but no battle? Because you can't fight God. You can't fight God and win. It's as if the final enemies of the time when all the wrath is being poured out are gathering in this plot spot and God looks down from heaven and says, huh, What we can take from this is that there's things in this world that we view as dangerous, that we view as so powerful, that we view as earth-shattering, and the God in heaven isn't affected by them at all. His plan continues. You can try to gather, you can assemble, but you can't battle against God and win. It's crazy to think so, and his enemies knew it. There's another reason there's no battle here. 
is that in anywhere in the book of Revelation up to this time, have we ever come to a spot where Jesus Christ's authority, Jesus Christ's rule, Jesus Christ's power, Jesus Christ's kingship was up for grabs? That someone could come and take that from him? Absolutely not. You can't fight against Jesus Christ and win. It's folly to think a human power can overcome the God of the universe who put all this into action, created all things, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once God. So what do we make of all this? Then what is Armageddon? Why did John put Armageddon in there if that's the case, if it's not this real battle? This is a classic example of something that I want us as Crossview Church to get into our heads and our hearts every time we pick up this book, and that's the Bible is not written to us, it's written for us, right? The Bible's not written to us, it's written for us. It was written to an original audience in 90 to 95 AD. John was writing this letter out to a group of Christians at the time. And to know what Armageddon is, we have to put our minds back where they were and realize what John is doing because it's masterful when we get a handle of what he's about and why he used Armageddon. Don't you see that's another reason why there's no way Armageddon could be this 21st century battle with these missiles and tanks because the original audience, that would have been so far from their mind. There's not going to be this huge war break out at Armageddon. The first century audience would have heard John write this as it was recited to them, and they say in Hebrew is the place called the Hill of Megiddo or the Armageddon, and they would immediately thought, oh, Megiddo. That's the place where the righteous Israelites were attacked by the wicked nations in Judges 5, 2 Kings 23, and 2 Chronicles 35. They knew their Old Testament. They would have said, oh, Megiddo, that's the place where the kings who oppressed God's people were wiped out and defeated in the Old Testament days we saw in Judges chapter 5. They would have said, oh, Megiddo, that's the place where the false prophets were mocking God and God's wrath was poured out, and he destroyed them in 1 Kings 18. They would have said, oh, Megiddo, that's where all the nations will come against Israel on the final day, and they will be destroyed as God's wrath is poured out as prophesied in Zechariah chapter 12. These are the things that would have came to their mind when they saw that word Armageddon, because John's original readers would be very familiar with the imagery of the Mount of Megiddo and what happened there, and they would see that place as nothing more than the place where all of Israel's enemies would go and God would strike them dead. In their mind, they'd already have realize that the Mount of Megiddo, that Armageddon is the place where people rise up against God and God wipes them out. And so John is pulling this out as a symbol, and it makes complete sense 
And John is saying in this symbol, all the enemies that were defeated by God in the past at Megiddo that you know of, well, guess what? There's going to be one final judgment that's coming where all and every enemy will be laid out by God. And it's not going to come from this big battle and this big war. It's going to come from the hand of God's wrath. John's main point is that all the enemies of God are struck down once and for all. And he uses Armageddon not as a prediction of a future battle, but as a symbol to his readers that they would know that in the past, that's the place where God wiped out his enemies previously. And now he's going to do it once and again in the last judgment for all. That's the most accurate interpretation of this text. Especially because in verse 15, Jesus says, look, I come like a thief. So if we were to take Armageddon literally and look at that literally, that means so that if literal kings from the east would march across and they'd march across a dried Euphrates riverbank, literally, and they would march all the way miles from the riverbank to the Mount of Megiddo, literally, would that be coming like a thief in the night? You could see that months away. Armageddon is not this literal, physical battle war. It's symbolism. That God, for once and for all, in the last bowl poured out of his judgment, is going to pour his wrath on his final enemies. And he uses, John uses the word Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon, because his original hearers already have in their head, that's the place where God has taken out his enemies in the past, and he's going to do it again in the future. Sorry, I know I am the revelation party pooper. (laughs) 666 and the Antichrist are not a future political ruler, and now Armageddon is not a real 21st century battle. This is what John is saying. All the enemies of God will be destroyed by God's righteous judgment, and it's not even going to be close. Who can battle against God? What I want you to remember in all this is this. Revelation was not written to entertain us, Revelation was not written to satisfy our curiosity as when Jesus is going to come back. Revelation was not written to be this map for us to map out the future. It was written to give Christians, first century, us, and beyond, strength and encouragement to know that this world in front of us is not all there is. And when it seems like things in this world in front of us are going against God, nothing could be further from the truth. Amen? I know we're not a church that like yells amen a lot, but you got to say amen there. (laughs) This was written to give all Christians, first century and beyond, strength and encouragement to know that the world we see in front of us is not all there is. And when we see in that world in front of us anti-God sentiments, things moving and looking like they're out of control, nothing can be further from the truth because nothing can defeat God and his kingdom purposes. 
And the final bowl of God's wrath is poured out in 17 to 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. The wrath, the judgment of God is poured out on the wicked. It's completed. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with wine of the fury of his wrath. We're going to get into that next week. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From huge sky, from the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God. They cursed God on account of the plague of the hail, because the plague was so terrible. The wrath of God completed. And when it was completed, they cursed God to the end. If we finish studying the book of Revelation, and we're able to interpret every symbol we see, we're able to pull out every spot where the Old Testament makes its way into Revelation, we're able to say how many eyes are on the beast and what that all means, but we are still intimidated by what the world thinks of us as Christians, we've severely blown it. If we get to the end of this study of Revelation and we're able to pick out all the symbols and say, well, that's why that's there. But we're still enamored by the world's wealth, then we've severely missed the point. If we're able to see all the Old Testament in and interpret all the crazy stuff, but we're still addicted to the world's comforts and pleasures, then we've missed the point of this book completely. The danger of revelation is not tribulation. The danger of revelation is not that you're going to be persecuted as a Christian. The danger in revelation is anything that pulls your heart away from Jesus Christ today. That's the danger of the book of Revelation. This is given to us to wake us up. Jesus says that in verse 15. Blessed is the one who stays awake. The, the danger of revelation is you're going to get seduced today by the things of the world and they're going to pull you away. And all of a sudden the things that mattered to God don't matter much to you and you're so addicted and obsessed and compulsed with the things of this world that you're not feeding yourself the things of God. That's why this book is here. To say, wake up. We need to rid our lives of anything that pulls us away from Jesus Christ. We need to rid our lives of anything that pulls us away from Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus saying to us today? Oddly enough, Jesus interrupts John's thoughts. Now, if you have a Bible that has red print for the words of Christ, some of you may have wondered what's the deal with the red print. The red print is anywhere Jesus is speaking. It goes red in some Bibles. Uh, the newer Bibles are going away from that. I personally don't like that. I like the red print. Some hate it. I like it. It's a personal preference. But 15 is in red amidst a bunch of black. What that means is John is writing out this letter and he's writing to his original audience. 
And then as he's writing, it's like Jesus Christ, the Son of God, interrupts and says, hey, I want to say something here. He sticks it right in the middle of John's thought, if you look at it. And he says this, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. You're not supposed to let this catch you off guard. And then John continues his thought. What an amazing thing that Jesus interjects here. And so what is he saying? He's saying something that we've said throughout this book of Revelation from the beginning. Jesus is saying the end of the world is not going to be primarily marked by things you can see. The end of the world is going to be primarily marked by my unexpected appearing. Stay awake. I come like a thief. You want to get ready for the end times and Jesus' unexpected appearing? Be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Give him your full allegiance. Cut off and destroy any love affairs you have with the pleasures and the things of this world and stay close to Jesus Christ. That's how you prepare for the end time. Be done with lesser things. Get rid of the time wasters. If you're more excited about video games and things on TV than you are interacting with the God of the universe and his word, then repent and ask God's help to change your heart. Wake up. The only way to have true joy and peace in this life is to have your sins forgiven and be rescued from the wrath of God because you are hidden in Christ Jesus. The only way to have true joy and peace in this life is to have your sins forgiven, be rescued from the wrath of God because you are hidden in Jesus Christ. If you've never come to that place where you say, God, forgive me for all my sins. I repent and turn from my ways and I want to turn and live for you. Today is the day to do that. What will the battle of Armageddon be like? It will be like ordinary Christians living out their lives in faithful obedience to God, expecting Jesus to return at any moment. It will be like ordinary Christians living out their lives in faithful obedience to God, expecting Jesus to return at any moment. To get ready for the second coming of Jesus, don't spend a lot of time looking at the riverbanks of the Euphrates. To get ready for the second coming of Jesus, don't spend a lot of time looking at the Mount of Megiddo. To get ready for the second coming of Jesus, put a lot of time and energy into being with Jesus and worshiping God and talking to him in prayer, and reading your scripture, and finding God behind the scriptures, and reflecting on it, and growing. I want to say that everything I said about Armageddon and all the things here in this sermon, you don't need a seminary education to figure that out. A good study Bible will do you just fine. Give yourself to God and his word. Be done with lesser things. 
live in obedience and holiness and look forward to that amazing day when you will gaze into the face of your Savior and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Can you imagine? If you can't, you need to spend some time imagining that day when you gaze into his face and you say, my God, I worship you. And you hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, because in these days you turned your back on the things of the world, you pledged your allegiance to Jesus Christ, and you followed him in faithful holiness and obedience. That's the call before us today. That's how we respond to Revelation chapter 16. Let's pray.